Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Wright. As I'm sure all of you know by now, Kyle Rittenhouse, a young man now 18, but at the age of 17, crossed the state line between Illinois and Wisconsin, went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and inserted himself in the midst of protests against the shooting of a young man named Jacob Blake by police. Blake, by the way, was shot seven times in the back, and at the end of the day, the police were exonerated. Yet, here comes Kyle Rittenhouse, armed with an AR-15, goes into Kenosha, kills two people, wounds another, goes on trial, and is acquitted. Not just on one count, but on all counts. To me, it's frightening because it indicates the devolution of American justice. And it shows in a long line of situations where people were shot and killed, going back to Trayvon Martin, going back to Sean Bell in New York City, and no one was made to pay. To me, there's no better person to discuss this issue, its aftermath, and its implications, not just in Kenosha, not just in Wisconsin, not just in America, but around the world. Nobody better than to talk to my good friend, John Nichols. My guest on this episode of The Intersection is an old friend and a brilliant small d Democrat. He is the national affairs correspondent for the nation. He is Mr. John Nichols. John, how you doing? Very good to be. I'm glad to be with you, sir. It's a, we're talking on a on a rough day politically uh, and uh, and societally, but yeah. uh, it's a pleasure to be with a friend like you. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Let me ask you right off the top: um, What factors do you think went in to this uh, not guilty verdict on all charges? I think that there were a lot of factors, obviously. And uh, I mean, how far back in American history do you want to go? I guess I should ask because, you know, look, we have a criminal justice system in the United States that uh, has for centuries been uh, inclined toward uh, favoring the white guy with the gun. And, um, and that's, that's a reality that, that you have to put into the mix. Uh, we have to recognize it. Uh, with that said, if we come down to the moment, if we look at this trial and, mm -hmm. and what occurred here, I, I think that the biggest factor was the judge. Um, and uh, I think the judge's engagement with this trial from the start was troublesome. Uh, he, at the very beginning, he said that the two people who were killed another person who was badly wounded could not be referred to as victims. Why did he um, think he did that? Well, I think he wanted to, uh, you know, the nicest face you could put on it would be to say that he wanted to keep everything even in the eyes of the jury, right? You know, to have that the notion of a victim uh, creates a sense that, that someone is the aggrieved party, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that by doing that, he, he sort of robbed the trial of an honest language, an, an honest language that referred to the reality that two people were dead, another person was injured, and that um, they did not come to that 
A, they weren't shooting at Kyle Rittenhouse. B, they didn't come to that demonstration that day. Um, I think with any sense that they were going to get into a deadly conflict. Sure. And so, uh, so that's, but I, so I think the judge was wrong, but I think that, you know, that, that may be some explanation there. Then I, I think throughout the trial, we saw uh, a judge who was constantly berating and, uh, you know, operating in conflict with uh, the prosecution. I mean, he repeatedly interrupted the prosecution. He uh, yelled at, at the prosecutor at some times. It was clear that at least one of the prosecutors, he, he didn't seem to like, you know, literally personally didn't like the guy. Uh, and it, it came through again and again and again as we, as we watched the trial play out. And then I think you, you go to the, the final element here, which is not to be underestimated, and, and I think a big part of, of what we saw, and that's the jury instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the jury instructions gave that jury, they were convoluted, they were difficult to understand. Um, uh, even for the judge, he interrupted himself at one point while he was preparing the jury instructions and talking with the lawyers about it, saying, I don't like what I'm saying, or I, you know, and, and, yeah. and it was a messy, uh, poor set of jury instructions, but they did t- tend to, I think, narrow the options for the jury um, to uh, a, a kind of a mentality that you're either going to let the guy off or you're going to convict him. And uh, at the end of the day, obviously, they, did, they chose to let the guy off, which I think sends a terrible signal um, as regards these particular incidents and more broadly about you know, folks who bring you know, heavy-powered weapons to demonstrations. John, let's step back from this for a moment, uh, because I, I got to be honest, there was no way when I first heard about these killings that I saw Kyle Rittenhouse as a sympathetic figure in any way, shape, or form. How did he become such a, a, a sympathetic figure and such a rallying point for the right? Yeah, I think that that you you summed it up in your in the final element of your question there when you refer to it as a rallying point for the right, and I think that's something that that really has to be in the mix here. Um, you know, in the United States we have a, a guarantee of a speedy trial, right? Mm-hmm. But this wasn't a speedy trial. This this trial is coming more than a year after the incidents occurred, and during the course of that year, um, the the right wing in the United States, starting with Donald Trump, who came to Kenosha physically several times, including right before the 2020 election, mm-hmm. and made this a huge issue. Um, and it was very sympathetic to Rittenhouse throughout. Um, the, the right made this a big issue. They raised a ton of money um, to support Rittenhouse, to get him lawyers, to, to build the structure around this. And frankly, uh, if you listen to right-wing talk radio or watch uh, right-wing or conservative television programs in the United States, um, you've been fed a steady line of Kyle Rittenhouse as a heroic figure. Um, and uh, and the, there's been two elements in this. One, I think you do have uh, a, a obviously the racial element because this traces back to the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. That's what yeah. was the genesis of the demonstrations. And Even though the people who were shot and, and two of them were killed and one was injured in Kenosha were not black. No, they were white. 
or you know at least they they were not black and um and uh so that was one factor there mm -hmm. but there was a racial element to this and it's 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 impossible to deny it there was also a political element to this throughout that that was not uh not deniable and but then i think that that over that period of time it's quite clear that the uh the defense prepared kyle rittenhouse for this trial they were it was their determination to put him on the stand and to take a very young uh obviously pretty immature uh man uh, who had just turned 18 and have him ready to deliver a uh, testimony that did, I think, in the eyes of the jury, humanize him and make him at least somewhat sympathetic. Obviously, I, that that we take away not from interviewing the jurors, but from their their decision. From the decision, and, sure. Yeah, and how do you do? How do you make someone like this sympathetic? Uh, I, I think that what you did, what what happened here, was he was very prepared to answer the questions with a, uh, a very legalistic uh, but uh, powerful statement. And that was that, you know, I felt my life was endangered. I, I responded to someone who was, you know, going to harm me, who I felt was going to kill me, right? This, mm -hmm. he, he kind of reiterated that again and again and again. Now, um, I, I question that. I question what he says. I'm not. I'm not comfortable with that assessment of it, or, or frankly, how he responded to it. However, what I think, if we separate what I think from the reality of, of what happens in a courtroom, uh, to get a suspect, a defendant, on the stand, and to give them substantial amount of time in which they repeatedly say, "I felt I was in danger," right? I felt I was. I was going to die. Yeah. Uh, said again and again, that underpins a self-defense argument. And that's what the defense clearly set out to do. Do you think, John, that the jury in this case, um, they deliberated, uh, what was it, from Wednesday until today? Yeah. Do you think it was an actual deliberation or do you think it was more or less lopsided in favor of acquittal and they just had to get a couple of holdouts to change their minds? Well, I, that's a good question, Mark, and and we're going to learn. We'll learn stuff over time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is, we'll we'll know better the dynamics of the jury. Right now, that's a little bit of guesswork, right? Yeah. You know, people are. Yeah. Um, I, even if it was a united jury for uh, acquittal, uh, the a wise jury, if they have a wise for for person, someone in charge of them, uh, takes the time to do a review, right? And in this complicated case, it would take a couple of days. So I, I'm not going to tell you that there was a holdout, right? I don't know that. And I don't know that they, you know, badgered a holdout to come over, as you see in the, in the movies, right? Or yeah, something yeah. like that. You may have had, you know, a, a kind of a relatively united group going in. I don't know that. Um, what I do know is that they did ask to see videos, to... They asked questions. They clearly were engaged in a process. They weren't just sitting there. Um, and so I personally hold out the hope that there were at least some jurors who were who felt that that there should be some accountability, you yeah. know, and that yeah. obviously that it didn't get to that, but but that there was some debate 
Um, again, that's guesswork at this point to an extent. And I think at the end of the day, whether there were whether there's nuance within the jury, uh, that doesn't change the reality. It's a it's a little bit a court case is a little bit like an election, right? Mm -hmm. There's one headline that comes out of it. The headline in an election is Biden wins or Trump wins or whatever. Uh, the headline in a trial is Rittenhouse convicted or Rittenhouse acquitted. What's come out of this that 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 baseline that's come out of this is the message that, that Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted. And boy, that, that is going to have, I think it has huge repercussions. Uh, oh, in yeah. The United I think it does. I, I think it has really big repercussions. And one thing I found interesting, and maybe it's just because I'm uh, looking at this case from afar, um, was there much made about the racial makeup of the jury? Because uh, I didn't see much. No, I think you're right. I think your assessment from afar is is what I saw here uh, on the ground, and that is that uh, this jury was uh, uh, it, it was not a particularly diverse jury, um, but uh, there was it was a jury that was reasonably quickly accepted by the prosecution and the defense, hmm. and you know the interesting dynamic of this is that our discussions about the makeup of juries tend to uh, extend from the, the dynamic in the courtroom. If the prosecution of the defense is, is ill at ease and challenging a lot of folks and, tr and struggling with it more, then that becomes a bigger factor. Sure. In this case, uh, the, jury, the jury, as I said, was, you know, it came together relatively quickly. And I think people, uh, for better or worse, hoped that it would be a jury that would would weigh the all the facts fairly and and uh, in a way in an honorable way. Um, I I'm always a little cautious about beating up on jurors. I think mm -hmm. it's a rough thing to do, you know, to be a juror, you know, especially in a case like this. I think they came to the wrong conclusion. Uh, I think they I I don't think that that they that they handled this the way that I would have. But um, with that said. Uh, you know, to go to your core question, uh, this jury, this jury will be examined uh, a good deal in the aftermath of this trial. There will be efforts to get interviews with jurors, um, and and I think it's a real good possibility that we will hear from one or more of the jurors. If we do, um, we're going to get a lot more insight on all of those dynamics. Mm -hmm. You know, and and frankly, remember, people don't know this jury right now. This jury's kind of operated sort of very anonymous. anonymous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw reports that said that people felt the prosecutor blew it, either in overcharging or not presenting a cogent case. What sense did you get? Okay, I think that's a, a very fair question. You know, there's always a question of overcharging, right? And um, you know, what do you do in a situation where somebody leaves two people dead and one person very badly wounded? Um, do you not charge, you know, mm. that at, a, at a high level? I think if you go too low on that, you're, you're, you're going to get hit with a lot of questions of, you know, why, why, are you, why are you charging in such a limited way? And that can blow back on you somewhat as well, because then people say, well, you're just trying to find something to throw at this guy, right? Yeah. You know? yeah so, uh, so I think that the, the debate about overcharging is a, is a complicated one, and, uh, and they charged multiply. They had a lot of charges. 
charges. Yeah. And I think one of the key things here was that some of the charges that might have been the most easy to convict on, yeah. having a certain kind of weapon uh, that you weren't supposed to have, things of that nature, the judge knocked some of those out, right? Early so on. End up, yeah, well, right before, as you, before you went to the jury. Yeah. And, um, and so that, so I think that there was a, a you know, if you will, a, an array of charges that they could have embraced. And, um, and I think that was the way that they addressed that, that question of overcharging versus under. Um, now to go to the deeper question of the prosecution, you know, did they, uh, did they blow it? Uh, look, I saw some things I've, I've watched a lot of trials. I grew up in, I grew up in, uh, uh, the courthouses of southeastern Wisconsin. My dad was a court commissioner and an assistant district attorney, and then a mm-hmm. and then a, a attorney in private practice. So I've been in those courthouses. I've watched trials in those places, and um, I got to be honest with you. I thought that the prosecutor came off as a little slick, you know, a little bit. Uh, his style kind of it wasn't exactly the style that I I think was the most effective. In a in a circumstance like that, I think you know, kind of a, a more uh, a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more uh, uh, kind of all knowing character who, mm-hmm. who really kind of works it. This prosecutor, the main prosecutor, uh, Tom Spinger, seemed to be uh, you know kind of very tight, very you know uh, almost bureaucratic in the way that he he went about it. So I don't necessarily know that there were specific places where he quote unquote blew it, like he he didn't you know do some of the basics. But I do think that that stylistically, I'm not sure he was that he was the perfect perfect player in that case, and that's one of the real subtleties of a of a trial. Uh, I will say in in the prosecutor's defense, if I can use the right terminology there, um, that his close I thought was very strong, mm-hmm. and I thought. He did what you're supposed to do at the close of a trial, and that is to bring together all of this complex uh, discussion and have an arc that that could lead a jury to a point of conviction. That's what a prosecutor is supposed to do. Yeah. I thought his close was dramatically better than the defense's close. And really? so, you know, yeah, I thought the defense's close was was very bureaucratic. You know, they just basically ticked off item after item and said, well, that didn't that didn't connect, that didn't work, stuff like this. And I thought, I thought the prosecutor's close was better. But um, with that said, I, I think you, you have to have an honest take at the end of these things. You step away and you say, well, in a case where there was so much clear evidence of so much, in my opinion, wrongdoing, that you don't get a conviction, right? That mm-hmm. does come back on the prosecutor. You know, it's it. You know, you could say, "Oh, he had the defense was great. They did all this great stuff," or the judge did, you know, some things that I thought were particularly troublesome. Uh, but at the end, a prosecutor's job is to to make it work, and uh, and I they did not. So it didn't happen in this case, that's for sure. Absolutely, that's right. there has to be some some negative reflection there on the prosecutor. John, uh, the judge in the case, and and you mentioned that you know he was controversial. I think throughout the course of the trial. Uh, but he really raked the media over the coals at the end, saying that they were their coverage had been somewhat frightening. And he had banned uh, one, I guess, freelance producer from either NBC or MSNBC from the courtroom for following the van that the jurors were in. Um, 
how much weight do you think, or how how valid is the criticism that the media, uh, if the prosecutor didn't blow it, that the media blew it in this case? I don't think it's valid. Um, I think that the media coverage of this case, I mean, look, we don't have the media that we had in the past in America. I mean, sure. that's an important thing to, do, to say. Uh, you know, in Britain, you've got the BBC, right? And yeah. there are some core touchstones. And the BBC influences kind of the character of a lot of media extending from it. Uh, the United States doesn't have that. We, we have public broadcasting, but it's not so powerful. Um, and so we tend to have a media that, that's sort of all over the place. You've got a right-wing media, you've got some more liberal media, you've got sort of so-called mainstream media, but it's often uh, more toward entertainment than, than really, you know, depth. And, and so uh, to say that the media was the problem, yeah, I think it's, I think at this point, we have a big problem with media, a big mm -hmm. problem in America with media, but it, it, it wasn't necessarily unique to this case. What I would say is, that um, this judge was clearly stung by media coverage. It isn't about the case, it's about him. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he knew full well that he has been called out aggressively and appropriately on media, a lot of media in this country, especially on the, the cable channels where uh, legal commentators are on. And yeah. uh, I, I wrote a column about it and, and you know, ran through the list of his transgressions in this case. I mean, it isn't just that um, he, to my mind, seemed to have a bias against prosecution. It's also just his, his bizarre handling of a lot of elements of the case. You know, just it, it, he, I, I think he, he did not do a good job. And mm -hmm. I think that was pointed out a lot in the media. And I think the judge didn't like that. My final question is, again, to ask you to step back and look at what this verdict may say. I mean, we, we've seen this before. Uh, uh, I remember being on a radio show uh, in the case of a, a young man named Sean Bell who was killed by cops in Queens some years ago. And somebody asked me the weekend before the verdict came out, uh, well, do you think the cops are gonna get convicted? And I said, no, I said, sad to say no. And they weren't. Uh, George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin case, thought maybe they'd get convicted, he'd get convicted, he wasn't. What does this case say, given those previous cases, what does this say about the state of American justice? Because see, one thing I find out not living in the States anymore is that other places, even America's enemies, when they bring up something like the treatment of the Uyghurs uh, by the Chinese or, or you know whatever the Russians may be doing, the first thing they do, and most, I'm not sure most Americans understand this, first thing they do is throw stuff like this back in America's face. So what I'm wondering is, what do you think the long-term ramifications of this case specifically will be at least about the perception of American justice? Bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's going to be bad, man. And you, you just summed it up. Uh, as well or better than I will, because that that it isn't just true uh, between the U.S. and and other countries. It's now true inside the United States, and that's an important thing to understand. Uh, you're absolutely right. When we talk about human rights, when we talk about justice, when we talk about fairness, that has for a long time 
come back from other countries where they've said, well, hold it, then how come this happens in your country? How come you allowed this? You know, we talked about apartheid in South Africa and people said, yeah, but what about the American South, right? What about, yeah. you know, the American North quite often? And so, you know, we've, we've often, you know, on an international level, get, we often get called out. But that has really come home to America. The fact of the matter is I have an 18-year-old daughter. Um, she has grown up uh, in, in these times, in a time uh, with a powerful Black Lives Matter movement that has called into question systemic racism and the, the many challenges that extend from it. We have the 1619 Project in the United States, which examines the history of structural racism going back to slavery through segregation uh, into the modern age. And so we just have, a, I think, a, a, a much greater awareness as a country. There were always people who were aware in this country. Yeah. There are a lot more people, um, a whole rising generation of young people like my daughter, uh, who think of our criminal justice system as rigged or stacked or unfair or unjust. Uh, all the words are used. Um, and whether that is always true or sometimes true, or um, you know, whatever the whatever the dynamic is, yeah. there is a sense in this country that that we have a real problem with our criminal justice system. And this isn't a right-left thing, Mark. Um, our criminal justice system has been called into question, certainly by many people on the left, but there are conservatives, libertarians, yeah. who have been saying, this is a mess of a system. Yeah. It, 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 it fails on many, many levels. Now, most of the discussion about failures in our system have tended to focus on uh, mass incarceration and on police violence. And, and these are things that are talked about a lot. But you know, at the core of that system is a judicial process, right? Yeah. Where if something goes wrong, it's supposed to be rectified in the courts. Well, a ruling like this, where I think for an awful lot of Americans, they saw something go wrong. Uh, here you have a court that didn't rectify it, that, that didn't, didn't achieve what I think an awful lot of people would see as justice. And when that happens, uh, it, it creates a, a sense of decay of, yeah. of dysfunction. Anguish. And for me, it was anguish. anguish. I got to tell you. Anguish is a good word. I was searching for so, you know, and, and frustration, anger, you know, all these things become real. So I think America's, uh, you know, we, we've had plenty of wake up calls. You know, they, they come all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the latest one. And I guess if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say that uh, there are much, much deeper issues at, at, at issue or at question here. There are many, many things that, that are going to have to be addressed. We're not going to resolve this with, you know, in one day or one week or one month or one year. But as a people in the United States, I think we really have to look much more deeply at our criminal justice system and particularly at the courts and begin to understand that this isn't just about the police. It isn't just about prosecutors and defense attorneys. It's about judges. And uh, in this case, again, as we've said throughout this conversation, I think the judge uh, took this case in ways that were inappropriate. And I think uh, did harm to the cause of justice. John Nichols, as always, great to talk with you, man. We could talk for another hour because uh, we, we didn't even get to the thing about the Democratic Party, but I really appreciate your time and we'll talk again soon. 
I look forward to that, Mark. It's always an honor to be with you. My thanks to John Nichols for his candor and his insight in discussing the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Mund. Until we meet again, please stay well.